It's time for Children's Church. We're still in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. We're talking about Thanksgiving today. And, uh, you know, I guess I should be glad that I didn't. You you should be glad I didn't linger on in this text another two weeks so I could get this one in, uh, you know, the week before Thanksgiving. That would be doing an injustice to, I think, the scripture and to, uh, um, well, pastoral care. So, uh, just so that you kind of realize, you probably always think about it, it's always a fine balance as you try to work through sermon texts to know uh, how long to linger with a passage so that it is profitable for the people and, uh, and not to go too fast, not to go too slow. So, all right. Chapter 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word that we might know the fullness of joy in your presence. That we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy that we seek in this world. So to have that joy, it is vital that we understand and believe your word. And we need your spirit to come this morning to illuminate the Word for us so that we can understand it. We need Your Spirit to work in our hearts and our minds, that we would believe and treasure what Your Word says. So fill us with lasting joy this morning in accordance with Your Word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who died for Your joy and ours. Amen. In my uh, <clears throat> opening prayer, well, not my opening, my pastoral prayer, I talked about what was going on in the Northeast and the hardship that so many of them are experiencing. Long lines for gas. It's almost like a flashback to the late 70s. You know, I remember those days. There's gas rationing taking place in Virginia, in New York, in New Jersey, and places like that right now. You know? One of my brothers-in-law waited in line an hour, got to the gas pump, empty. Talking to my sister-in-law, and it's a cash-only society in many places because there's no, where there's no power, they can't run all of the other machines, so you've got to pay in cash. And if you don't have it, if you weren't wise enough, perhaps, to go to the bank and get some, you're in serious trouble. You can't buy gas. 
You can't buy food if that store happens to have a generator that runs, you know, probably just the, the cash register and the, uh, the freezers. Hard. It's times like that that we get reoriented. The things that are significant in life probably come into greater clarity for us. The things that we uh, found such joy in sometimes are stripped away. That same sister-in-law was lamenting over the fact that her kids have forgotten how to play without electricity. You know, <clears throat> that, that they need all their gadgets now, and, they, and they, they keep wanting to have their phones charged. And, you know, keeping the refrigerator going is a little more important than keeping the cell phone or the, uh, you know, Game Boy charged. Reorients us to what's significant. Amy and I have experienced that. We went through hurricanes. We knew that refrigerator and a fan, pretty important. <clears throat> Especially when one of you is pregnant and there's no power. <clears throat> Suddenly, driving in the car for the sake of AC became a good thing. I didn't think it would ever be that. <sighs> Lasting joy. That joy that can easily be stripped from us is really what Paul is talking about here. He's been praying for them since he's heard about them and their faith in Jesus Christ from Epaphras. And the three things that he's been praying on, the first two we looked at, where he's praying for wisdom. And he also prayed that they would have power. And Paul says essentially that these are found in Christ, who is the wisdom and the power of God. And so by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ, by faith, they have wisdom, they have power, they need not look anywhere else. These teachers had come in and they were trying to divert them from the pure faith in Jesus Christ to find wisdom and to find power in something else. And Paul is reminding them, you have all the wisdom you need. You have all the power you need. And now he's saying the third thing. I want you also to have joy, to have thanksgiving, a thankful heart. But notice there's going to be a shift It's still connected to their union in Christ, but it is really about the work of Christ that is ours because of that union with Christ. The big idea this morning is that God fills us with joy through the work of Christ. And so I've shaped each of these as a command because there's an implicit command that is in this prayer. And so the first command is to rejoice You've been given a share with the saints. There's an exegetical, grammatical sort of question that, that is at the very beginning of this text, and that is that phrase, with joy. Where does it belong? Does it belong with the patience, as the ESV translates it? Yeah, that's a legitimate translation. We see this, you know, it's in harmony with places like James chapter 1, where he says, count it all joy when you suffer trials of all kinds. And so there's a, there's a biblical testimony to the reality of hardship being met with joy. It's just as legitimate to put it with the thankfulness. After all, what is thankfulness? It's not merely... Thank you, God, for this you gave me. 
But there's, it, it comes out, the source of it is a joy that you have because of something. And so, you know, thankfulness is a manifestation of joy. And so I believe that the NIV is probably a better translation in this regard of, of joining the joy with the thanksgiving. No blood needs to be shed over that disagreement, however, because both are biblical. Okay, and sometimes that Greek grammar, it's like a big mystery. Okay, sometimes there's just stuff that... That's why these translations disagree. It's because both are valid interpretations of what Paul has written. The Word of God is clear, but not always as clear as we want it to be on every issue we want it to be clear on. And this will be one of those where your salvation doesn't hang on this. So, okay. So I'm working with the, with the idea that this is joined with thankfulness. And so, rejoice. Paul and Timothy <clears throat> are shifting the focus from the present need to past events so that they might have present joy. Past events that should give them present joy. Apparently they lacked joy. Apparently they were experiencing things that had robbed them of their joy. Apparently their joy was um, more rooted in their circumstances than in what they had in Christ. And so the hardship that they were experiencing had robbed them, had stolen from them the joy and the gratitude that should mark a Christian. I can't help but think of Nehemiah 8. They had this, they're, they're, <clears throat> in Nehemiah 8, they, they have the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, and, and they're there at the temple, and, and uh, you know, they've, they've rediscovered the book of the law, and the, they've been reading the book of the law, and the people are grieved because of the enormity of their sin. And it's amazing that Nehemiah says to them, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. He did not want them to despair, but he wanted them to recognize that God had given them grace in bringing them back. And that this was to be a joy of celebration, that God was at work restoring them, and that that joy was to give them strength as they move forward into the future. And what happens is despairing people have lack what? Energy. If you've ever been depressed, what do you want to do all day? Sleep. If you've ever been around, if you're one of those few people who've never been depressed, and I, I want to know who you are one day, tell me, not now, but tell me later. Because I want to know how it happens, actually. If you've ever been around those people, it's like, you know, you just recognize they're always tired. They have no joy. To not have joy wearies the soul. 
But we have, if we have joy in the Lord, which should not really ultimately shift because he does not change. He's not like the shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If, our, if that is the source of our joy, uh, then although our circumstances may change, we still should have some measure of joy. I'm not saying that you need to walk around like, uh, you know, you're the sound of music singing in the fields or something every day. Okay? <clears throat> but there should be some measure of joy. Okay, even in dark moments. And some of us are more prone to those dark moments than others. But there's still a light that's there. There should be a light that's there. Thanksgiving here is rooted in unchangeable benefits that we have in Christ because we are so prone to put them in our circumstances. Whether or not we have the right job, whether or not our spouse likes us today, whether or not our kids are obedient, or who, whether or not our car works, all of those things. We're, that's, we're prone to do that all the time. To put our, to, to bank our joy on things that can't support the weight of our joy. It's called idolatry, is what it's called, but we'll, Avoid that for right now. Um, <clears throat> Paul says that that their thanksgiving is directed to the Father. As a father, one of the things that gives me the greatest pleasure is gratitude in my kids. And as Paul has been talking about these things, that the power and the wisdom to live a, a life that pleases God, one of the things that pleases God is a thankful heart. He rejoices when his children are happy in his providence. He likes grateful kids. We see as well that the Father and the Son uh, are going to cooperate in all of this. In the first two things we're looking at this morning, the Father takes the, the front, the, the lead in what Paul says, and then at the end, he's going to bring Jesus back into this equation. And I want us to keep both of them in both in all three of these things. <clears throat> because the Father and the Son and the Spirit, because we are Trinitarian, cooperate in all of this. Jesus is going to execute the Father's plan is what's going to happen. So let's keep it within that that framework. And the first thing that Paul says is that he qualified you. We're familiar with that from the radio. If you listen to the radio, you can get pre-qualified for a loan today if you just call us at 1-800. Okay? It says that you're, you're sufficient, that you, you're empowered to do something, you're authorized to do something. So, you know, uh, when Amy and I were, um, you know, coming here to Arizona, um, if we had done it this way, we didn't do it this way. We set, this is how much we want to spend. The bank didn't tell, tell us how much we could spend. In fact, they wanted to lend us more money than we wanted to borrow. So, um, <clears throat> But they said, you're authorized from us to seek a house in this price range. Okay? You're pre-qualified. They're saying that you're, you're authorized, you're empowered to buy a house that is worth X amount of dollars or less. We chose less. Okay? 
But what's, what's significant here is that we're, that we're not just qualified, but our qualification is, as Luther said about our righteousness, it's an alien qualification. It's not because we are qualified in and of ourselves, but the Father qualifies us, meaning that He makes us suitable for something. The Father qualified them. And let's keep in mind, I think what is behind this, because right now he's saying you. In a little bit, he's going to say we. There's a shift in the uh, the pronouns that is significant, I believe, in this passage. He's saying you. You Gentile Christians have been qualified by the Father for something. And so we keep in mind that this is a gracious qualification. It is not based on their merit. This qualification took place in the past, although they have present benefits. As the Father sent the Son to qualify them, what did He send His Son to qualify them for? To share in the inheritance of the saints. There is a future blessing that awaited them, okay? Past qualification, future blessing, they're meant to be presently grateful for what has been done and what's going to come. They have been made heirs with the saints, or as the Greek says, just the holy ones. And there are some who have said that, that the, the hagios, the, the holy ones here, refers to the angels, that we're going to share in the inheritance of the angels. But biblically, I haven't seen an inheritance for the angels. So <clears throat> it doesn't seem to measure up on that standard. And, and also doesn't measure up with how Paul is using it in this letter. He's already used that word to refer to the saints, to the Colossians themselves. Meaning that they have essentially joined a group of people. What group of people have they joined? That is the issue that I think is here. And that they have joined faithful Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they have joined the heirs of the promise. They have become, as Paul will say in Galatians, they have become sons of Abraham and share in that promise. And so this is a Jew-Gentile thing, is what he's getting at. And he's saying, you have joined the true Israel. Christ has qualified you to share in the inheritance of Israel. Rejoice. How do you become an heir? If you're not by blood, it's often by adoption. The whole idea of adoption is here as well. The the, the inheritance, the idea of father... There's adoption here. One of the reasons why I'm I'm, I'm so convinced that this has to do with the Jew-Gentile relationship within the church was that the sister letter to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, is taken up with that relationship of Jew and Gentile. You can't read that letter without being struck by the problems they're having, which is why so much of the emphasis in the second half of chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians is focused on this. You know, you Gentiles once had nothing. You had no hope. You had no citizenship. You had hostility. But now you who are far away have been brought near. You have hope because you have Christ. You're made citizens with them. 
<clears throat> and so this is the idea that I think is also working here in Colossians. From Ephesians 3, we see even this. This is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They don't replace Israel. They join Israel. They're members of the same body, Paul says, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's that whole Romans 9 through 11 thing. As believing Gentiles are grafted onto the true vine of Israel. So we're joined to the true Israel. We share in blessing through Christ who, you know, through, who the, the Father has used to qualify us. This is our, one of our sources of joy. And so we don't become heirs to the promise of Abraham by circumcision, which is one of the issues that's going to come up in this letter, but by Christ. He is sufficient to make us heirs, fellow heirs with the saints. So rejoice that you have been given a share with the saints. But again, rejoice. You've been delivered from darkness. There's more. I feel like one of those guys, you know, in those commercials. You know, get the bamboo steener. But there's more. Okay? <clears throat> there is more for our joy that should result in thanksgiving. It, too, is free. Sort of like all those extra things they tack on when you buy the bamboo steamer. He has delivered us. Note this. He is active. We are passive. He is the one who delivers. We are the ones who have been delivered. Precisely because we could not deliver ourselves. We were in a pit so deep so nasty that we could not get out. That we could not climb out. We didn't have a rope to throw it down. We're like dead men at the bottom of a pit. And he came and delivered us. <clears throat> we needed to be rescued. And he is the one who issued the successful order. It was not like the execution of the uh, Iran rescue in 1979. 80. That didn't go so well. This one was successful. But note, Paul doesn't say he has delivered you. He says he has delivered us. Now he and Timothy are part of the us. He's not just saying, this is what's true for you, but he's saying this is also true for the two of us as we write this letter to you. We needed to be delivered. We read about Paul's conversion in Acts 26, where he, de he describes what happened to him. And there's a shift that we're going to see that's similar to this. He, he was actually in darkness, and then he saw a great light. The light that was Jesus. <clears throat> so often, I don't know, thinking about um, American cinematography, because I like American cinematography for some strange reason. I always think of The Great Escape. Ah, great movie. Yeah, I love that movie. 
But these were men who escaped. They weren't delivered. They escaped. And one of the ironies of the story is that it was the man that no one wanted to go on the escape who actually ended up going because he was the one guy who could do all the passports, but his eyes were failing and he was literally blind. He and his friend who walked with him were the only ones that made it to safety. All the rest got captured again or killed. That's not what this is about. This is more like the, the more recent movie, The Great Raid, which is about uh, <clears throat> what happened in the Philippines. <clears throat> As these American POWs uh, were trapped, and they, there was no place to escape to. And a small band of soldiers came and rescued them. That's what this is like. We, there's no hope for us to escape. Someone had to come and rescue. That is the idea of deliverance. Jesus was sent by the Father, to rescue us. Not only did he rescue us, but it says that we were transferred. He has delivered us and transferred us. He put us in a different situation. He did not just remove the oppressor, but placed us in a better situation. This is not like Iraq post-Saddam Hussein, you know? <clears throat> where you have the same problems, and actually they're worse because half of your country's been bombed into the dirt. But uh, <clears throat> Christ not only re- delivers us, rescues us, but transfers us someplace. He moves us spiritually from one place to another place. Paul clarifies this for us. We've been removed from the domain of darkness. We have been translated or brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. And this reminds us of something. It should be very clear to us is that every person on the, on the place, uh, on the face of the earth lives in a kingdom. They also live in a country, but spiritually they all live in a kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. One is the domain of darkness, and one is the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's it. Everybody you see when you walk down the street, when you go to work, they live in one of those two kingdoms. The the question is, which kingdom do they live in? All of us in Adam belonged (coughs) to the domain of darkness. In that sister letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote in chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked. We're going to hit that again in a few weeks. Um, But here's the thing I want us to draw attention to. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a devil, and he is at work in those who are in his kingdom who are under his domain. And he moves them so that they live in wickedness. And the primary wickedness is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They might be nice people. Perhaps they do not partake of many of the sins of their culture. But they get that one wrong. And if that's the only thing you get wrong... That's the only, that's the most important thing. 
You can get everything else right, but if you have that one wrong, it doesn't matter. So, unbelief is the first of things that he works in them. They do not believe. Paul talks about this again in Ephesians 6. He reminds them in Ephesus that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we don't think about it. There is a spiritual reality that we only know by faith. We don't want to think about the fact that our nice neighbor is in the domain of darkness. We often suppress that because it can be difficult for us to deal with emotionally if we sat and thought about it for very long. And that's one of the reasons why we don't do as much evangelism, because we don't want to think about the fact that they're in the domain of darkness. We too, Paul says, were in this spiritual bondage to dark, corrupt powers. No one was exempt. Not because of their um, country, their social status, the color of their skin, no one was exempt. We could not free ourselves because those powers were far greater than us. And this transfer was accomplished in Christ. The Father moved us from the domain of darkness into this kingdom of His beloved Son, the Son who was fully loved of His Father, And so we who believe are also, because we're united to that beloved Son, are beloved. We're fully loved. Not because we're lovely, but because we're in the beloved, the Son. It's very significant for us to remember because we are prone to think that God loves us because we're special. That we did something good yesterday. Or that we're pretty darn handsome. That would never be me. But it is always Christ. The promises of the false teachers rejected the reality of Christ's sufficiency. They had to do something else in addition to believing in Jesus in order to experience this this transformation from one kingdom to another. And so our new citizenship in the greater kingdom through Christ should be a source of joy by faith. You know, some of you, proud to be an American, right? I don't think many of you go, I hate the fact I'm an American. You know, unless you went through the public school system. You know, then you're, these days you're taught to almost hate your country. Because, yeah, we did some bad things. We've also, the country's also done some good things. You know, eh. 
You weigh it. You know, when I, when I go to another country, I realize, man, we got it pretty good in America. So much more should we rejoice to be glad that we have been placed in the kingdom of the beloved Son because there's nothing that can take that away. America could fall apart in the next ten years. It's looking like it might. Um, But you know what? That can be okay if we're in the kingdom of the beloved Son. Third, once again, rejoice. You've been freed from guilt, is what he's telling them. The mention of Jesus shift Paul and Timothy's attention to the work that Jesus did in all of this. Something incredibly important had to happen for those Colossian Christians and for you who also believe in Jesus Christ to live happily in that kingdom. Okay? You know, it's, it's like our, our fun stuff with Asher and his citizenship. You know, something has to happen. You know, uh, USCIS has to get the memo. He's really in the country. Okay? Something more significant than that has to take place for these people to, to live in the kingdom that the Father has transferred them into. And Paul explains it as redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now some people try to separate these two things as if they're separate things. Like there's redemption and then there's forgiveness of sins. But what seems to be going on here, just as what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1, is that Paul is explaining the benefit of redemption as the forgiveness of sins. If you have been redeemed, your sins are forgiven. If your sins are forgiven, it's only because you've been redeemed. Okay? You don't don't have one without the other. So Paul, you know, as I mentioned in Ephesians 1, he puts it this way. In Him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgression, trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so this redemption, this forgiveness, is done through the blood of Jesus Christ, His sacrificial representative um, uh, death upon the cross for our sin. And this takes place, as Paul says, according to the riches of God's grace. Because there's no other way it's going to happen. It takes a God who is rich in grace to give His only Son, His perfect Son, His beloved Son for people like us who don't deserve it. That's grace. That's not You know, you owe me five bucks, but don't worry about it. I saw a headline about someone who owed their employer $6.3 billion. I don't even, I didn't check to see what was going on with all of that, but I can't even conceive of, of that. But that's what this is. You owe like this humongous debt. And God is so gracious. He's not foolish because He lavished this upon us in wisdom and insight. 
We think of forgiving the people who have abused us as foolishness. But God thinks of it as wisdom. I find it astounding. Boy, we should rejoice. That word redemption comes from an economic term to buy back a slave or a captive. Because some people were slaves, uh, you know, because of war. They were captured. And what you're doing is, is you're paying a ransom for them to bring them back. They didn't believe in prisoner of war camps back then, you know. It was, uh, you're now somebody's slave. Have a nice life. Okay. <clears throat> and so you are buying them back from that slavery. Sometimes it was an economic slavery. You owed your uh, debt that you could not pay, and so you were enslaved, essentially, to pay it off. And this says that someone buys you back. Your kinsman redeemer, your relative says, I can't stand to see you in that state of affairs, and so here is the money that you need for your freedom. And Jesus sees us in our sin, And he says, I cannot stand to behold you in that deplorable condition. I'm going to buy you out of it with my blood. An exchange takes place. In the months to come, we're going to look more clearly at this. But let me say this, that the emphasis here is on being set free. You're in bondage of some sort, and now you're being set free. Forgiveness points us to this debt of sin that we owe. It's what kept us out of the kingdom of light. Free. We've been released of that debt. We've been pardoned of that of that offense. And so Jesus frees us from the darkness. And he brings us into the light by canceling our obligation. We needed pardon. Has anyone ever forgiven you of a large sum of money? How do you think you'd feel? I imagine you'd feel pretty happy. I know when I get large sums of money, I'm pretty happy. Sometimes what happens is we forget. We have spiritual amnesia. And we don't remember all that we have done in rebellion against God that Christ has paid the price for. In other words, we stop looking at the cross. And that when that when we stop doing that, we stop being grateful. We stop being filled with joy. We start being powerless. We start going spiritually adrift. And so in a sense what Paul is doing here is calling them back to Christ and Him crucified. So that they would remember how it was they were forgiven, the great debt they had before God, and the incredible joy they should have now. 
Brothers and sisters, circumstances change quickly and drastically. Sometimes it's a big storm by the name of Sandy. Sometimes it's something by the name of cancer. Sometimes it's death of a loved one. Some people in the Northeast are going through a very temporary hardship, but some of them have seen all that they own destroyed. Joy that is rooted in circumstances is fragile. It's fleeting. And so Paul does the incredible loving thing to them and to us is that he points them and us to the source of abiding and greater joy. This text is all about what God did. All we are to do in this is to give thanks with joy. Do you believe that Christ and his work are sufficient to give you lasting joy? Paul did. Let's pray. Father, I confess that far too much of my joy is wrapped up in how well my team does or how good my day went. How productive I was at work that day. How I'm feeling. All of those kinds of things. Whether or not we can avoid takeout, I mean, not avoid, afford takeout this week. Not enough of my joy is, is found in Christ. And we're all, all of us are in that mindset. And I thank you that You gave us Paul, and through him gave us this letter that we can continue to be called back to what Christ has done, that we would find our joy in firmer things, that we would find our joy in the one thing that has been for all time, the Son of God, through whom you made all things. Really set our hearts on him. That we might find joy in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.